0: Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Curator's Choice. This episode, we're going to be speaking with Jeremy about George Washington's Mount Vernon. Mount Vernon is actually George Washington's estate, and it has been restored to the time when he was actually living there, and it's an entire deal. It's got the mansion that he lived in, the one that he kind of expanded. It's got the greenhouse that he had, slaves' quarters, the plantation... It's got an education center and a museum. So it's really a whole experience when you go there. But the two particular items that we're gonna be talking about today are a pair of eyeglasses of George Washington's and also a short sword. And what's really interesting about this is we're gonna be talking more about the history around these items that they were kind of a centerpiece for rather than the specific history of those items themselves. So thank you so much for tuning in. You can always learn more about what I'm talking about at CuratorsChoicePodcast.com. You can see pictures there of the, of the items that we're talking about in this episode. And also, you can check Curators Choice Podcast out on Instagram and Facebook, and I try to post different things on each of those mediums, so you're not just getting a double viewing of the same thing. All right, well, let's go ahead and get started.
1: Hi there.
2: Hi, my name is Jeremy Ray. I'm the Director of Interpretation at George Washington's Mount Vernon. Uh, That's a fancy title that that means that I oversee all the staff that give the tours of George Washington's home uh, inside and outside on the grounds, as well as overseeing the work of our talented character interpretation team uh, who portray people from George Washington's lifetime. We have a Martha Washington. We have a Caroline Branham, who is an enslaved uh, servant inside the house, Frank Lee, the enslaved butler, Tobias Lear. Uh, who was General Washington's secretary, and Dr. Craig and James Anderson, General Washington's doctor, and then later farm manager.
1: So I'm not entirely sure who I met when I was there, because I didn't recognize the name. But I did meet someone when I went a few months ago, and they were in character. And I mean, it was just amazing. They did a great job. They were so fun. And you could tell that they really enjoyed being in character too, which is always really, really nice. So you guys are killing it on that aspect. Uh, so was it
2: was it an older gentleman or a younger gentleman? It was a woman. Okay.
1: Yeah, and we, it, you know how when you go down by the dock, but that area down there, she was talking to us about the farming practices and things like that.
2: Ah, so that actually is outside of my area. The, the, that's our historic trades department. Uh, so they dress in the 18th century clothing, but they're not portraying anybody from the time period. So we have a four. A, it's a it's a recreated mini version of one of the outlying working farms. Uh, and they do demonstrations down there. So we have the 16-sided barn, uh, the the slave cabin, which approximates the living conditions for the enslaved population on those outlying farms. It demonstrates the crop rotation system in the field. So it's it's a pretty pretty neat thing. But in Washington's time, that area was called the hell hole. It was actually a, a swamp. Uh, so There's a retaining wall in the river now that prevents it from going over there, so far more family-friendly viewing now as the farm site than Washington's hellhole.
1: Uh, Much better. It's much more pleasant to be there now. So that's one of the things that also is really, really great about this area is it's not just a single museum even. There are a ton of different activities and things available. So what can you expect to kind of come in and see when you first show up and are ready to go check out Mount
2: Vernon? Yeah, so George Washington's Mount Vernon is a historic house museum, uh, but we are very fortunate in that it is one of the earliest preservation society uh, efforts in the United States. Uh, The Mount Vernon Ladies Association is a private nonprofit organization that was formed in 1853, purchased the estate from the Washington family, John Augustine Washington III, in 1858, and we've been open to the public since 1860. And today it is obviously the home of George Washington, restored to the last year of his life, 1799, that guests can walk through and, and see. Uh, but also a lot of the outbuildings, the dependency buildings that helped operate the plantation. Uh, we have recreated uh, to the original design at the original location uh, the enslaved people's living quarters that was part of the greenhouse uh, structure. Of course, there's the tomb. Where General Washington, Mrs. Washington, and her family and their family are at rest. Uh, we have a recreated farm site uh, that recreates one of the outlying working farms. And then three miles down the road, we have on the original location reconstructed George Washington's grist mill and distillery, which are both operating. Uh, they create mill uh, products for our gift shop, and we are still producing whiskeys and brandies uh, based off of Washington's recipes that that he sold back in the 18th century and that of course also includes when you come to Mount Vernon we have a museum and an education center which is a full walkthrough of Washington's life not to mention all the wonderful digital content that we have as well.
1: Yeah so I will say that um, I mean this is a pretty small podcast and when I saw that it was the ladies association I was like hey maybe (laughs) I can uh talk to them and actually get them to be on my on my podcast and I'm super excited because Mount Vernon is a huge deal and so it's really really exciting for me for you guys to be on the podcast and then you know you're talking about all these amazing places that you can see within there and I mean really it is a you can spend a whole day there you don't have to but you can easily spend a whole day there and walk the grounds go through all of the different departments I mean you can look inside I mean it's it's really really cool I really enjoyed my time there
2: yeah. Not, we have so many things to offer. You know, most people just think, well, I'm just going to go visit the house. And then they are shocked when they realize how much that we actually have. Exactly. Uh, I think, I think uh, you could easily spend a full day, if not more, if you really want to get into all the history, uh, because we have a series of fantastic films uh, and not just static films where you sit down and, and watch on the screen. We, we have our B. Washington Theater, which is an interactive theater where you are listening to primary source documents from people of the time. And then you have to make the decision, take the action uh, at the end. So it's it's a lot of really cool stuff that we have uh, out and available. And it's it's currently all open. OK, I feel a
1: little jipped because I didn't know about
2: that. Well, you can actually play it online. You can you can play B. Wa- uh, B. Washington online through our website.
1: Oh, that's cool. And I did look online. And I mean, obviously, it has a lot of really, really great resources and everything available on there. But I just really appreciated how in-depth everything was about President Washington, because, I mean, you know, in your history, you know, in your history, you kind of learn about it. But I was never crazy good at history. And it's it's just so cool because you can go in there. And even if you're a crazy history buff or even if you don't know anything about history, you're really comfortable because of the layout of the learning that you guys have there.
2: Yeah, I mean, the the real idea of how we have everything set up and under normal circumstances, we get 1.1 million visitors a year. Uh, So we have a time ticketing system to be able to get into the house. And the idea is you come onto the estate, you have your time selected, and that allows you to go pay respects at the tomb or go down to our beautiful slave memorial, which is uh, built around an area where uh, currently we know around 80 or so enslaved individuals are, are buried. Uh, so you could, you could pay respects there, you could go down to the Pioneer Farm site, you could explore the museum and the education center. And then when your time comes, you can go up and actually go through and experience the house itself.
1: And I know that for anybody who actually is going to be able to come, you can sign up online to certain tours throughout the house, right? Yes,
2: yeah, so we actually encourage that uh, because again, an, under a normal volume, uh, Purchasing your ticket online is the best way uh, to get that time, and then you can plan out your day. But currently, under COVID restrictions, we uh, have very limited mansion tours because we're under restrictions for how many people can be in an interior space at a time. Uh, So we strongly encourage everyone to check on our website uh, to book their time ahead of time if they're planning on coming out.
1: And I'll link all of that in the um, the description for the podcast. So anybody who wants to see that, all you got to do is just click on the link, and it'll take you right to the area. So...
2: Great, yeah, mountvernon.org, very easy, all the, all the information's there.
1: Very easy. So can you kind of, think, you guys had better be the George Washington experts, right? So could you kind of give us um, the just a quick overview of kind of George Washington's life and coming in and, and ending in living in this mansion?
2: Yeah, so George Washington was born in Pope's Creek Plantation, which is uh, east of Fredericksburg. Uh, his father was a Virgin, was also born in Virginia. You have to go back to his great grandfather before you get the first Washington male who was born in England and actually immigrated over. Uh, but the Washington family owned multiple properties throughout Virginia: a uh, plot of land to the east, Pope's Creek, as I mentioned; a plot called Ferry Farm, uh, just across the river from Fredericksburg and then this little Hunting Creek property that they received as part of a land grant in 1674. Now that is the property that we now know as Mount Vernon. Uh, It passed down through several Washington family members until it was owned by George Washington's older half-brother Lawrence Washington. He's the one who actually renamed the property Mount Vernon after a British Admiral that he served under uh, as part of the uh, Virginia Regiment in the War of Jenkins' Ear, which is this whole other thing.
1: Sounds kind of blasphemous to me to have the house named after something British. It's one
2: of the, one of the great ironies, uh, but you also have to remember that the Washington family got the property as a land grant because the Washington family supported the English crown during their civil war back in the 17th century. So it's one of the great ironies of American history. Uh, but George Washington inherits the house when his brother Lawrence dies. He dies of tuberculosis, and he moves into the home in 1754 right at the beginning of the French and Indian War. Uh, George Washington eventually became the commander-in-chief of the Virginia Regiment during the French and Indian War. He learns a lot, gets a lot of uh, military experience there, Uh, and then kind of comes back, marries uh, Martha Dandridge Custis uh, from the Williamsburg area. She moves in And after the French and Indian War is done, he settles in and starts expanding on his properties and becomes a farmer, He's really settling into that kind of Virginia planter lifestyle. Uh, But then, of course, things continue as they do. And there were issues with parliament and taxation and the colonies. Their view was, hey, all these taxes are being passed and we don't have representatives uh, that have a say in this because prior to this, prior to all this taxation, which, by the way, was to help pay for uh, their the British intervention in the French and Indian War. Uh, it was, hey, our local legislatures, our, our colonial legislatures were in charge of that before. Why the change? Um, eventually, of course, we we have the War for Independence, and George Washington was, was named the commander-in-chief, and he would leave his home. He would leave Mount Vernon for eight years. It's, it's funny. He writes off this letter to Martha saying that I've been elected to this position as commander in chief. I'm heading off to Boston and I'll see you in the fall. Uh, But he he really isn't gonna be able to return home for eight years. Uh, He successfully wins our independence as we all know. He retires back. He thinks he's coming back to another age of retirement. But this is really a period of uh, governmental crisis in the young country. Uh, We're under the Articles of Confederation. It was a very weak centralized government. Uh, For anything to pass, it required unanimous consent from all 13 states, and that's just not really happening. So you see a lot of delegates from these states who are really needed to work together to kind of create things on their own. Delegates from Maryland and Virginia actually met at Mount Vernon to discuss fishing and trading rights on the Potomac River, which, of course, Washington's home sits on. Um, and this little item was called the Mount Vernon Compact. It's often overlooked, but it was really the precursor to the Constitutional Convention because it had a little stipulation that said delegates from these states need to meet every year so they can pass things out. And it was an open invitation. So they actually met in Baltimore in 1786 and then again in Philadelphia in 1787. And Washington was there presiding over the, the creation of the Constitution, this new government uh, that we are still under today and of course he was called once again to leave his home uh two terms as president another eight years first in new york city and then philadelphia which were the capitals and then finally you know he said he sent out to all the newspapers i'm not going to serve a third term
1: i'm
2: done i'm done let me go home yes i'm I'm done i'm tired uh which which is kind of true like he he didn't want to serve a second term he really didn't want to serve his first term he He writes a letter to Henry Knox when he found out he had been elected the president, said he felt like a culprit being led to his place of execution. Uh, You know, but again, his, he had this strong sense of duty, right? Everything, it was important to him to serve. And if he could make a difference, he was, he was going to do so. So after those two terms, uh, he says, that's, that's enough. I, I will not serve a third term as president. Finally retires, comes back to Mount Vernon uh, tries to settle into things, but unfortunately, he he passes away two and a half years later at the age of 67 at the end of 1799.
1: And kind of going back to when you were talking about how he was done, he did not want to do more than a, like, he didn't want to do a third term. I think that that kind of gets overlooked in a lot of ways, how impactful for the rest of our United States after that, how important it was for the leader that we wanted to keep in was like, no, there needs to be this this break. We we can't have someone staying for too long. And for me, that's something that I was really excited when I first learned about because I thought that was such a cool kind of limit for someone in power to make.
2: Yeah, Washington and serving the two terms is is something that's fairly remarkable when you look at at history. It's not often that somebody who has power like that just willingly gives it up. We got to remember there wasn't an amendment to the Constitution at that point that had a limit to the number of terms the president could serve. Washington was unanimously elected to his first and second term in office. So it is very likely that he would have been elected again to a third term. And just doing that, I mean, that's the will of the people, right? They're, They're voting him in. That in and of itself is not an abuse of power. But what would happen if he, say, died in office, right? It just gives the opportunity for somebody else down the line to say, hey, well, Washington served for life in the position, so I'm doing the same thing. Um, But I think more importantly, it really highlights the fact that Washington himself operated so often under this concept that he was given the power and the authority from someone else. And he was not going to abuse that trust. He was always going to hand it back. And we see it not only in the presidency, but also even during during the war, during the revolution. And I'll, I'll speak to it when we're talking about some of the objects we have in our uh, education center. But Washington was so popular at the head of an army, he could have easily have abused that power, but instead he resigns his commission. He gives it back to Congress. He said, this Congress and the people are the ones who are leading this effort. I'm just leading the war effort. So to me, to abuse that power, I'm not gonna follow in the footsteps of an Oliver Cromwell or a Julius Caesar. And there's this wonderful apocryphal story. We don't know if it's true or not, but uh, when Washington put out in the newspapers that he wasn't going to serve a second term, uh, a, serve, excuse me, a third term as President of the United States, I uh, prompted one man who, who already knew that he gave up power willingly as Commander-in-Chief and I he's going to do it again as President, prompting him to say, you know, if this is true, then he's truly the greatest man to ever live. And supposedly that was King George III of England, who said that about Washington.
1: Okay well let's just let's just no matter what pretend that that's definitely true because that's pretty (laughs) big.
2: (laughs) It makes for a good story doesn't it?
1: So he was unfortunately it seems you know he had to spend a lot of time away from his house Um, and while he was gone what was kind of the place looking like while George was gone all the time?
2: Well the war never stopped and it's very important to remember that Mount Vernon itself is is a slave Plantation, by the end of his life, there were 317 enslaved individuals on the estate. So even while he was away, uh, that work was constantly being done. Uh, Initially, Washington was a tobacco planter, meaning uh, the enslaved population tended, raised, harvested, uh, cured, uh, aged tobacco to pack it up and sell it. Eventually, though, Uh, Tobacco was an enumerated good. It was also very bad on the soil. And in the 1760s, he begins to transition over to cereal grains, uh, primarily wheat, and opens up grist mills, a merchant grist mill, and so forth. It allowed him to diversify and not fall into a debt cycle that a lot of tobacco farmers in the 18th century were, were experiencing. But while Washington was away during the French and Indian War, during the War for Independence, and during the presidency, he had Farm managers, often uh, they were family members. Lund Washington, his cousin, was the farm manager when Washington was away during the Revolutionary War. Uh, and they were tasked with uh, keeping the plantation running, making it profitable. And it's interesting, when he's away during the war, the number one subject that he's writing about is, is back here to Mount Vernon and how things are operating and how things are going. And this was a duty that the farm managers had to take very seriously. It actually got Lund, Washington in a good good bit of trouble because during the war, the British actually came up the Potomac River and threatened Mount Vernon. The HMS Savage uh, threatened to burn the house down unless they received supplies. And Lund, Washington dutifully got the supplies ready and and gave it to the ship to spare the house. And, you know, he thinks he's doing what he should be doing. Washington's neighbor, George Mason, one of those forgotten founding fathers, um, writes a letter to George Washington saying, hey, this is what's going on. Are you, and obviously I'm paraphrasing, but this is what's going on. Um, what Lund's doing, he's giving aid to the enemy, and Washington writes this scathing letter back. This
1: is like social media drama before there was really social media.
2: <laughs> right. It's, it's, it's a, you know, it gets a different version of a tweet when you're writing with a quill, right? Different, different version of a bird, but Washington writes this scathing letter back it basically says, I'd much rather hear that my entire plantation and home was burned and lie in ruins than to hear that you gave aid to the enemy. But basically, he's telling them, next time, let them burn the place down.
1: Yeah. What What was what supplies did he end up giving?
2: D- just food and things like that. But it's also interesting, there were 17 enslaved individuals who used that as an opportunity to run away uh, and get on the, on the savage. Now, um, one of those individuals we know was a carpenter by the name of Sambo Anderson. And we know that because uh, sadly for for Sambo Anderson, he ended up back with Washington after the Battle of Yorktown. Uh, There were several of uh, enslaved individuals who were attempting to run to freedom with the British during the war uh, that were part of the capitulation uh, at the Battle of Yorktown was that they were sent back to their quote unquote owners
0: it's at this point that I go a little off the rails and talk a lot about the things that I saw when I visited but the one that I really wanted to bring into focus was in one of the exhibits that he has they had these cardboard cutouts of kind of shadow figures and they were the stories of enslaved people that were on the plantation kind of giving them like an individual story and they have cutouts of them but not actual pictures because obviously back then they didn't have cameras But it's neat because it's a really good tribute in a way to try to bring home the individual stories of what these enslaved people went through.
2: So we have two museum spaces, uh, but only one that we actually refer to as museum. And that what you're referencing is the current exhibition called Lives Bound Together, which documents the lives of the enslaved individuals who are here. A lot of by name of what was going on. Uh, And it is temporary. It it has been on display for several years now, but it will be closing soon. However, a lot of the elements from that exhibition, because it's such great information, is being uh, distributed out onto the grounds as part of our interpretive signage and panels. So all that's going to be updated. And the other uh, people refer to this museum, but it's our education center is actually planning to be updated. Uh, in a few years. And a lot of that information is going to be integrated into that side as well. Uh, but it, it's interesting because, you know, we we changed a lot in the, the telling of the story of the enslaved community. I'm sure you're probably even hearing me say enslaved people. Uh, we, we really try to focus more on individuals instead of just talking about this kind of collective group, you know, the slaves uh, that were doing the work here. It's very easy to overlook the fact that these were human beings who had families, uh, they had connected relationships, uh, they had varying skill sets and, and abilities, uh, so we, we really try to break it down and talk about as much as we can, uh, particularly on the mansion tour going through there, about people like Frank Lee the enslaved butler, or Charlotte an enslaved seamstress, or Lucy the enslaved cook, who was married to Frank Lee the butler, and they had children and. You know all these individuals, and I think they're really compelling and interesting stories that fill in the a lot of the missing blocks of history that even made up Washington's life and make it far more compelling story to tell.
1: And what was also interesting as you're walking through the museum is it kind of shows a little bit of George Washington's moral battle within itself of you know fighting for freedom for a country, but then also having slaves himself and kind of his moral issues with that. And then at the end of his life, in his will. He set his slaves free. Am I,
2: do I remember that correctly? Uh, so yes, George Washington actually did struggle with the issue of slavery over the course of his life, particularly after the Revolutionary War. You start to see in his private correspondence um, some, some issues, maybe, maybe moral, um, on the institution of slavery. Washington was born into a slave society. There were laws in place that that made it so that. These, these African slaves were to stay in this position and that the children of the mothers, if they were enslaved, would stay enslaved. And Washington saw nothing wrong with that in his, in his earlier life, uh, probably because of the blinders set in, because that was, that was society at the time. But after the war, we start to see him struggle with this concept of selling and breaking apart families. We start to see him uh, looking at the system and saying, you know, maybe there should be some sort of law passed by the states that would lead to the gradual ab- abolition, and he was a proponent of that. Um, but ultimately, he, he never took action during his lifetime, but he did write out in his will that upon his death and the death of Mrs. Washington that the enslaved people that he owned outright were to receive their freedom. And I think this is very important to remember as part of the overall history of Washington, because it is true Without him, it is unlikely that America secures its independence from Britain. I mean, the Declaration of Independence, the words that all men are created equal would then be hollow. They would be meaningless without securing that independence. And of course, the Constitution, we the people, in order to form a more perfect union, this promise, this idea of continually getting better and doing better and, and being this beacon would also be hollow without understanding that in Washington's time, there was this history, there were these people that that didn't apply to. So learning the stories, learning these histories, just making more empathetic to the fact that Washington did all of these great things. But it's important for us that if we want to live up to the promise that Washington fought so hard to secure and to win, that we also need to be aware and look and see where these blind spots are in our society now that prevent other people from living up to and achieving that same promise. So that's why I think uh, you know our our exhibition in our museum is, is such a fantastic thing because it really gets that conversation started.
1: It does, and you know I've I've done a few of these different episodes, and there have been you know times where enslaved like, people do come into play, and I just genuinely appreciate the fact that we have this medium where we can openly talk about it because it is an embarrassment for a lot of people. It is a really painful history for a lot of people, but it needs to be talked about and needs to be learned from.
2: Yeah, and we we really try to do that um, here. we we got a fantastic staff who are really, really willing to meet you where
1: you're at. And so this kind of leads us perfectly into some of the items that we, we want to talk about and specifically feature for the episode, but there are a few Few things I would like to just toss in there myself that were particularly really memorable for me when I visited, and one of those items was this gigantic concrete like roller for the lawns. And it, you know, when you visit Mount Vernon, it's nothing but lawn everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> you just state of lawn, and they have these uh, rollers. So, Can you kind of tell us a little bit
2: about those, just for my own personal enjoyment? <laughs> yeah, so the, the lawn maintenance was something that was very intense. So enslaved people would take those rollers and kind of level out the ground, right? Uh, and then they also had these big sides and, and, and whetting stones that they would cut the grass and sharpen. And it was, it was a very intense skill uh, to be able to do it well. But yeah, those big stones were there for leveling and smoothing out the surface.
1: Yeah, I can I can't even imagine pushing them around. And it's just kind of a funny thing that you don't really think about whenever you do go there and you see all these fantastic level fields. That was literally hand level by a huge rock roller.
2: Yeah. It's very labor intensive. And and having that having that big bowling green uh, really shows off Washington's wealth and status in society because that means he's he's got enough wealth that he's got land that's uncultivated, but he also is able to own the labor force to maintain that.
1: And something that I certainly didn't know before I came about Washington is that he was actually quite a gardener.
2: Yeah, he really enjoyed uh, the pursuit of gardening. Uh, he, he liked it, he designed the landscape itself with the wonderful curving pathways and the natural wood uh, on either end, uh, planting the trees. Uh, he even had a, a little botanical garden that it was said that he would experiment with the various types of plants and we actually know, he found that alfalfa grew well in the botanical garden and he actually implemented that as part of a crop rotation system on his outlying farms uh, in between the the wheat. So he instituted this crop rotation so that he wouldn't burn out the soil and the alfalfa was used as a feed fodder for the, for the livestock.
1: So he was quite a scientist as well.
2: Yeah, he was really, uh, he really should get more credit for applying scientific method particularly to farming. Uh, He was an inventor as well. Often gets overlooked uh, with other founding fathers and their, you know, inventive prowess. But Washington invented a a barrel seating plow. Uh, The 16-sided barn is a giant threshing machine. Uh, That was his own design. So and not to mention that he was also the architect for the expansion of the house.
1: So what what kind of items were you wanting to feature? And they're, they're inside the house, right?
2: Uh, No, these objects are inside our uh, education center, which is one of our little museum structures. So the house is great. We do have a lot of original objects in there, Uh, but again, it's it's a little harder to control that environment. So some of the more sensitive objects, uh, some of the really more neat uh, items are down in our museum or in the education center. You know, I'm an interpretation. So it's all about the stories, right? So I think these two objects really highlight Um, One, an aspect of Washington's life that most people don't know about in the French and Indian War, and another goes back to what we discussed uh, a little bit earlier about what we discussed about Washington and uh, his legacies of giving up power It just goes to show and highlight just how fragile all of this was at the time. All
1: right, so delve right in. What do you want to talk about first?
2: So the first object is is a small broadsword that is on display in the Education Center in our section that covers the French and Indian War. According to family tradition, this this broadsword is one that Washington wore during the Braddock campaign. A little bit of background. uh, The French and Indian War is what we call it here in North America, but it was part of a larger global conflict called the Seven Years War. Right, In North America, it was started by, want to take a guess?
1: (laughs) No, because I'm going to get it
2: wrong. Well, we're talking about George Washington's Mount Vernon. If you had guessed George Washington, you would be correct. Yes. So at that time, there weren't really a whole lot of boundaries set. And in the Western territory, kind of modern day Pennsylvania, uh, the Ohio's and so forth, uh, that land was in dispute as being owned by the, the British Empire and the French Empire. Both claimed that they had that property. So the governor of Virginia actually sends out a a young, well-connected man, a major named George Washington, to go out and meet with the French and tell them that they need to leave. The French kindly say, no, thank you. And Washington comes back. He actually publishes his journal of his adventures. And that's how most of the British New World comes to know about George Washington. Well, later, the governor of Virginia sends Washington out with some soldiers to kindly ask the French to vacate the uh, British-held territory. Well, Washington, who's on this little diplomatic mission, comes across a little grouping of French soldiers. So it's Washington. He has some native allies with him. uh, He sneaks around them, and he actually attacks this French group. Now, unfortunately, within this group was a French emissary, uh, and pardon my my French pronunciation is bad, but a man named Juman V, uh, he was also a, a diplomat, basically doing the exact same George Washington was doing earlier, going to meet with the British and saying, we actually claim this land, here's our claim to it, could you please evacuate the area? Well, Juman V was killed in this uh, little incident. Uh, Washington, in his young youthfulness, his inexperience, just kind of doesn't realize the, the extent of what has just happened. He actually writes a letter back to his brother and says, I heard the bullets whistle and there was something charming in the sound, right? So he's excited. Yes, yeah, the young in, invincible man kind of thing, right? So um, he, he understands that there's probably going to be a counterattack. So he, he pulls back and builds this little fort. It's called a fort of necessity, right? And it, he stockades his soldiers in. Well, again, showing his inexperience, Uh, It's not far enough away from the tree line, so when the French do come, they're able to hide in the trees and fire down, and and the Virginian and British soldiers can't really fire back. Uh, It's in a low depression, which, of course, it starts to rain. It starts to flood. Uh, All of their weapons are not able to fire, and Washington is actually forced to surrender, and the document is written in French, which is a language Washington doesn't read. He doesn't speak. But fortunately, he has a translator who's Dutch, who also doesn't really oh, understand
1: French. <laughs> it's very just well. a mess from the start.
2: It's a mess from the start. So, but in this document that Washington signs his name to, he's admitting to assassinating Juman V, which is an act of war. So George Washington signs his name to a document taking full responsibility for starting a war that's going to be eventually fought in North America, the Caribbean, Africa, Europe. India and the Philippines. So Washington really starts this first major global war. Now, fast forward a little bit, Washington now decides, all right, I obviously have a little bit I need to learn. The British send over General Edward Braddock, who is like the big name uh, in, in, in their army to move and attack what's now modern day Pittsburgh, the Forks of the Ohio, where the French are building a fort. So George Washington volunteers to go with him, to to learn under Edward Braddock. This campaign is an absolute disaster. Uh, They take, uh, they're cutting a road through the wilderness to get there, they're moving super slow. And Braddock has a little bit of an arrogance about the whole thing. And and I think a little bit of it is deserved. He's he's very frustrated at the slow pace at which the colonial governments are acting in support. And The way he sees it, I'm here to help protect you and you're not getting me what I need. Washington actually does inform Braddock that you know we're kind of vulnerable to attack because the native uh, population, the indigenous people, don't attack in the traditional European style. And the French have actually adapted to this. And what actually ends up happening is, is known as the, the Battle of the Monongahela. And the, the British are ambushed by the French and their native indigenous allies and, uh, it, it's bad. They're almost completely wiped out. General Braddock takes several wounds that would eventually lead to his death four days later. But Washington, who again was just there in volunteer duty, still holds his his rank over the Virginia regiment. He takes his sword and he takes command of the Virginia of the Virginians, and he is able to help organize, you know, a little bit of a defense and organize a retreat back out. He really kind of steps in and becomes a leader during this amazing time of panic. And and what's really crazy is the fact that Washington had multiple horses shot out from underneath him. And when he comes out of the battle, he has bullet holes in his coat. So he was right in the thick of it and managed to escape unscathed. Uh, So this this sword that we have is, is right in front of a mural with with Washington on horseback trying to lead and organize this this withdrawal uh, from this firefight that the British are are completely unprepared for. And then again, family tradition also passes down that Washington had several swords, obviously throughout his lifetime, but he deeds them to various nephews in his will. And he he tells them that the only reason they should ever unsheath these swords is in defense of their country.
1: So where, where did the sword come from?
2: It was actually made in England. Uh, this one is one of the more simple of the swords. We have a variety of them in our collection in the museum and, and elsewhere. but uh, this one has just a, a wooden hilt, although we we believe it may have had um, some wire banding wrapped around it that, that that got lost at some point in time. Um, it's It's a relatively short uh, sword uh, and it's got two fairly large, arms of the hilt or finger rings for washing the his fingers through. As I mentioned, it's got plain wooden grip with the wire binding that's missing. And the blade is a hollow triangular form with a pronounced central channel inside uh, and a spine outside that tapers down to a point. So um, it was it's relatively simple looking compared to some of his other swords which had far more elaborate hilts or engraving on the sword itself. Um, but this one is one of his earliest ones. And we believe this is the one that is featured in one of the first paintings of Washington in his Virginia regimental uniform um, by Peel that we have
1: hanging inside the house. Oh, that's really cool. It all kind of came together with different items that you guys have there. And then what is the other item that you wanted to kind of show?
2: So the other object that we have in our education center is so unassuming that most people just completely walk by it. And it is an original pair of eyeglasses. Now, I want to take you a little bit of background as to why I love this so much, because Washington, of course, leaves to fight for the Revolutionary War, the War of Independence, and is gone for eight years. I mean, he is dedicating his life and he's putting his, his property and his livelihood uh, at risk uh, in this endeavor. And... The big culmination of his military career during the war is the Battle of Yorktown, where Lord Cornwallis surrenders to Washington, right? So most history books will tell you that is the end of the Revolutionary War. Well, that was in 1781. The Treaty of Paris wasn't signed until 1783.
1: So some time now.
2: Yeah, there were a couple years where Washington is still heading this army. He still needs to keep it together, Right. And things weren't really going so well uh, by 1783. Washington's actually headquartered in Newburgh, New York. And he's having some, some issues with his officer corps. In fact, they're very unhappy because they're not getting paid. Congress is having difficulty securing payments. Uh, they, they feel like they are being ignored. Uh, and there's actually secretly this petition that was written calling for the officers to mutiny if Congress failed to give them back pay and pensions that, that they were deserved. So one of the options they were talking about was just moving off into the wilderness and just letting the British you know, do what they will, because uh, they're still there, right? They're, the British are still in New York City. They still have a uh, presence there as, as things are kind of finishing up in, in Europe. Um, and, and another was maybe they should just march on to Congress itself and force them to do something. So Washington, the commander in chief, is dealing with an officer corps that's that's in a mutiny, like on the verge of an insurrection against his authority and the Congress. Um, so Washington finds out about this, and and he obviously is just as concerned about the fact that they're not getting pay. He he's not insensitive to their struggles, obviously, but Washington calls a general meeting of these officers that's supposed to take place a day before this petition has uh, proposed that they meet. And so all the officers show up and then to their surprise, George Washington shows up. Now they're all surprised, like, well, what, is, what is he doing here? And Washington actually addresses the men and, and admits that this anonymous author of this petition made, made great points, right? And it's true that the army has suffered, but he reminds them, that they have been through all of this together and continuing the fight is more important than just giving up on all this promise. Washington understands that it's not for selfish reasons that they're doing this. They're they're doing this to secure independence and to create this promise, again, of a better future, a better tomorrow. Unfortunately, most of the officers aren't really moved by This speech. So Washington, maybe a little bit of theater himself, reaches into his pocket and pulls out a letter from Congressman Joseph Jones of Virginia, which is just stating that, you know, this deliberation process takes some time. Congress is doing all that they can. We're trying to work out a peace treaty. We will get the back pay to you, we promise. But Washington, before he reads this letter, pauses, reaches into his coat. Just pulls out a simple pair of glasses. Most of these men have never seen Washington wearing glasses at all. And he looks at them and says, Gentlemen, you must pardon me. I have grown gray in your service and now find myself growing blind. So Washington is saying, We have fought, we have been brothers in arms for eight years, and we are fighting for something far more important than us. Let's not lose sight of that now. So When I talk about Washington and giving up power, handing his commission back, it's important to know that all of this just teetered for years and years. And it was Washington who kept it together. The American army lost more battles than it won, but it was Washington who held them together, kept that army in the field, kept that hope alive. And that all came together in 1783 with the Treaty of Paris. But with many people don't realize how close we were to it, it all falling apart. They, as a group, were in tears. Um, everyone said that that at that point it really struck home. They that they they knew that that doing this, all this scheming, was would be such a disappointment to this man that they all revered and respected. Um, so many of them were were you know embarrassed that that had even gotten that far, but. Um, it was it was one of the big teary moments in Washington's life. And of course, shortly after that, with uh, the Treaty of Paris, Washington rides to Annapolis uh, to hand his commission back to Congress. He takes the power entrusted in him by the people and gives it back. And once again, uh, one of his aides rights there at this time, it is manly to weep. Right. Because Washington was was just doing something that was so extraordinary. What's even more extraordinary. As you rode through the night from Annapolis, Maryland, back to Mount Vernon to be home in time for Christmas.
1: <laughs> that's so amazing. This is really cool because, you know, I've always been like, oh, George Washington, that's cool. But actually speaking with you for this episode actually is just kind of making me feel just kind of proud, you know, <laughs> it's really a nice refreshing feeling right now.
2: Yeah, that's what we, hope to, what we hope to do. And we have so many stories. There are so many great histories to focus on at Mount Vernon uh, that there's something for everyone to take away.
1: Well, thank you so much for sharing all of this with me and with my, my listeners. And I really appreciate Mount Vernon taking the time to, to be on my little old podcast.
2: Oh, you're very welcome. And thank you so much for having me and giving me this opportunity to share all these great stories of all the great work that we get to do.